Isn't it wonderful to know we're redeemed this morning? <clears throat> By the way, if you're not, I'm going to tell you about how you can be today, okay? There's a great story behind that song, Weaver. I can't remember his first name. Uh, Big Daddy Weave, yeah. His last name is Weaver, and he wrote that song, a tremendous testimony to where that came from. For those of you who have been here the past two weeks, you know that we've just completed our journey to the cross with Christ in Scripture during the last week of his life on earth, and we saw his sacrifice on the cross that he made for us, and his resurrection from death in the tomb, and, and we talked about the implications of the fact that Jesus Christ is in fact God, that he's alive and well, which leads us right into the subject of our message today, which is entitled, Redeemed. Next Sunday, we're going to have a guest speaker in our service. Uh, I will be here, uh, but we're going to have Pastor Greg Roderman preaching that day. Greg is a longtime friend and the father of Amanda, the youth leader that spoke at our Awaken Youth Church event last month. And he's also the father of the members of Beautiful Tension, the band that's going to be putting on the Awaken concert here uh, next weekend. So Greg's entire family actually is very involved in the ministry. And uh, we've asked him to speak next Sunday since they'll be here with their kids for our youth event. I want to tell you that as the pastor of this church, I'm very protective of the pulpit. And not in a competitive sense at all. Uh, but purely as a matter of love for this family. I'm, I'm never going to just have someone come and speak because they happen to be in the area and they're available. Okay, I care deeply about this church, deeply for you. And so there's a litmus test for who gets to stand on this platform and teach. Paul told Titus that pastors, elders, must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Titus 1.9. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, as he's finishing the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. You know, the only thing that a bad tree is good for is firewood. That's the only use for a bad tree, and thus the analogy that Jesus uses concerning false teachers, false prophets. So it's a very stern warning about being careful with who is permitted to minister to God's people. So if you're going to stand in this pulpit and teach in the church that God has allowed me to pastor, there better be good fruit in your life, and there better be sound doctrine. And I know that both are evident in Pastor Greg's life, okay? Because I've known him for 20 years. I've ministered with him. I've seen him, uh, experienced the good fruit in his ministry, in his life, in his whole family, really. His style of preaching is probably a little different than mine, which doesn't really matter, but I believe that he will bring a good word from God for us next Sunday. And I know that he's been praying about that and for us, okay? So that's something to look forward to next week, and please plan to be here um, for that. And then our family fellowship will follow immediately after service. In the meantime today, we're going to look at the result of the journey to the cross as it relates to our lives today. The fact is, if you've made the journey to the cross with Christ, died, buried, and resurrected with him, if you've placed your faith and trust and hope in him, and you're following him today, you have been redeemed, okay? And the reason that I think it's important to talk about this in the church is I'm not convinced that the majority of Christians completely realize 
just exactly what it means to have been redeemed. Okay, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. So what is redemption? The entire narrative of the Bible, the whole story from Genesis to Revelation is a story about redemption. That is the overarching theme of Scripture, the redemption of mankind. And from the very beginning of recorded history, we see the need for an innocent life to be sacrificed in the place of sinful men and women in order that our sins might be covered. Some believe that the first uh, recorded sacrifice in Scripture was Abraham sacrificing a ram with Isaac in Genesis 22 or Noah's burnt offerings to the Lord in Genesis 8 after the flood. But in truth, the first sacrifice recorded in the Bible was in the Garden of Eden. Immediately after Adam and Eve sinned against God and the curse was handed down, Genesis 3.21 tells us that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Okay, those skins were from an animal. Because the fig leaves Adam and Eve sewed together weren't probably cutting it. So God sacrificed an innocent animal in order to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. And thus began a pattern throughout scripture of innocent sacrifice to cover the sins of mankind until the ultimate sacrifice by Jesus Christ that covers our sin once and for all. Okay? Every human being needs a redeemer because we've all sinned. Romans 3, 9 and 10. And so much is this the focus of the entire biblical narrative that it is demonstrated over and over and over again throughout the Bible as a foreshadowing of the ultimate redemptive work of Christ on the cross. The entire Bible, in fact, including the Old Testament, points to Christ. Everything in the Old Testament points to Christ. This is why we should be as versed in the Old Testament as we are in the New because it's one big story and we can never fully understand that if we're only reading a little more than one-third of it. Okay? And the story, the entire story, points to Christ. The need for humanity to be redeemed is stitched into the very fabric of every aspect of the life of the nation of Israel. We see it throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew Bible. In Exodus, the exodus of God's people from Egypt. Psalm 106, 6 through 12 says it so well. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We've committed iniquity. We've done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy." This is a great parallel to our redemption by Christ out of a far worse state than the bondage of Egypt. As God's people were in bondage in Egypt for hundreds of years, they were eventually redeemed by the hand of Moses, a man that God raised up to be their deliverer, Acts 7.35. Just as we were redeemed from the bondage of sin by Jesus Christ. The price of redemption for the Israelites was the blood of the Passover lamb, Exodus 12:13. The price of our redemption was the blood of Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1:7, okay? It's a parallel to Christ's sacrifice. The need for redemption is also seen by the atonement money paid by the Israelites when the census is taken. Exodus 30:11 through 16, the Lord said to Moses, "When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord." When you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. 
Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. Okay, the atonement money the Israelites, Israelites paid as a ransom for their lives was a parallel to our ransom by Christ. And just as the ransom price was the same for all of the Israelites, it's the same for all of us, us the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Okay? We see the need for redemption in the buying and selling of property in Leviticus in the role of the kinsman redeemer. Chapter 25, verses 23 through 28 says, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee it shall be released and he shall return to his property. The Israelites could by reason of great poverty sell themselves and their labor to another. And the buying back of that person by way of his near kinsman is another picture of a redemption by Christ. By our sin, our spiritual poverty, we've sold ourselves into bondage and we, can, we cannot redeem ourselves. No friend is able to redeem us or has the right to redeem us. But there's a near kinsman who's both able and willing to redeem, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews seven twenty five through 27, okay? It's all through the Old Testament. Isaiah 48 and 61, and we don't have time to, to stop and read all of it, but we see those in prison for their debts being freed in the year of the Lord's favor. Not because of anything they've done to earn it, but simply because of His grace. It's another picture of redemption by Christ. In biblical times, a man in debt could be arrested and put into prison where he'd have to remain in bondage until his debt was paid, either by himself or someone else. Our sins are debts. They're debts that we can never pay. We were, we were all, therefore, before Christ, before redemption, locked up in debtor's prison by our own sinful nature. But Christ paid the debt and set us free. Zechariah 9, 11, and 12, we see slaves, exiles being set free, redeemed from their captivity. It's another picture of the redemption and ransom of our souls by Christ. All of these examples, and there are many, many others, are foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, making the ultimate sacrifice to buy us back from a death sentence. When people want to argue about the validity of Scripture, if you just take the number of authors who wrote the Bible over a span of thousands of years, and you understand that it all points to the same person who actually came and fulfilled those prophetic writings, it's hard to argue with the validity of the Bible. And of course, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 tells us we're not our own. We were bought with a price. He paid the ransom for us, and so we have been redeemed. 
set free. The wages of our sin have been paid by our kinsman redeemer, okay? This whole book, the entire Bible, is about redemption. It's about our redemption, all right? Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We just spent the last two Sundays looking at Jesus Christ's sacrifice for us so that we might be redeemed. So what is redemption? Then the Greek word for redeemed in Galatians 3.13 means to redeem by payment of a price or to recover from the power of another, to ransom or buy off. Okay, so if you're a follower of Christ, if you've placed your trust in him and you've accepted him as savior, you've been purchased by his blood and the wages of your sin have been paid. They've been satisfied, right? In short, you've been bought back from death itself. That's what it means to be redeemed. You've been paid for. Your debt has been satisfied. You've been bought back from the power of the enemy, from death itself, okay? So if that's true, and we've in fact been redeemed, that leads us to another question. What then were we redeemed from? Galatians 3.13 again says, from the curse of the law. We've been redeemed from death into life. We just went over that. So we now have a blessed hope to be glorified with him in all of eternity, saved from the eternal punishment that we were all headed for. But, but what else? What else were we redeemed from? Ephesians 1.7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Okay? So we were redeemed from our past deeds. The life that you once lived is gone now that you are in Christ. So stop reliving it. Right? God isn't reliving it. And there's no reason for you to be either. Stop beating yourself up over your past. You have been redeemed from your past. We've talked about that recently. I think for the most part as Christians, we realize those two points of redemption. Redeemed from the curse of the law. Redeemed from a past life. Even if we don't always accept that. But I think that sometimes that's as far as we go. I don't know that we always recognize the complete act of redemption in our lives. It's true we've been redeemed from the curse of the law. It's true that we've been redeemed from our old ways. But it is also just as true that we have been redeemed from the very person that we used to be. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 11-17 says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might live, excuse me, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Why is this so hard for us to grasp? But it is, isn't it? First Peter one twenty three says that we've been born again. 
Romans 6, 6 says our old self was crucified with him. We already read 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. We're not our own. We were bought with a price. Once you're redeemed, you are no longer the same person that you used to be. Therefore, we should stop acting like the old person. Thinking like the old person. Doubting like the old person. We should stop being afraid like the old person. Reasoning like the old person used to reason. Coming to the same conclusions as the old person. You're a new creature, a new creature in Christ. A new creation. You're a new person. I encounter so many Christians who freely acknowledge that their sins have been forgiven. But they're as afraid and confused and uncertain and unconvinced and unconfident and broken as the person that they were redeemed from. The old man. Listen, listen to me. The old man is dead. The old woman, she's dead. You are a new creature in Christ. We should accept that, recognize that, embrace that, and we really should live like that. We owe nothing to the old man. Our debt has already been paid. You've been redeemed. It's high time the body of Christ recognized that we have been born again. Born again. It's a new day in Christ. All things have become new. If that's true, then our attitude should become new. Our outlook should become new. Our confidence should become new. The way that we live should become new. That is what it means to be redeemed. And we should act accordingly. All right? So we know what redemption is. We've covered what we were redeemed from. Let's talk about what we were redeemed for. And this is where, really where I wanted to land today for the last half of this message. What were we redeemed for? Let's turn to 1 Peter, if you have your Bibles and you want to read along. 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to work through the first 25 verses and see what this passage can teach us about our redemption. There are about seven purposes, I think, in, uh, or outcomes of redemption outlined in this text. I'm sure there are more than this even, but let's look at this from Peter's perspective, okay? 1 Peter 1, 1 through 25. It opens up Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, we just pause there for a minute. To open a letter in the first century by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, introducing yourself as an apostle, was a bold statement. That was a heady thing to say about yourself. It would be like me saying, to upcountry church, Rob, the Pope. <laughs> you know, I mean, Pope maybe is not the best example. I couldn't think of a better one, but can you, the weight of the word apostle, I mean, we, th we throw it around now, and I don't, I'm not being critical of people who call themselves apostle at all, but I mean, it's become such commonplace for us to use that word. To say you were an apostle, for, for Peter to say he was an apostle was such a heady, bold thing. Can you imagine what it's taken, given that weight, the weight of that word? I mean, these are guys 
who established the church. Of course, the Catholic Church believes Peter was the first pope because Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I shall build my church. But, but they did establish the church, right? I mean, can you imagine the weight of this title, an apostle of Jesus Christ? And for Peter, a guy who was impetuous to a fault, a guy who was messed up a lot, a guy who was severely rebuked, By Jesus, this is a man who denied Christ three times. To be able to open up a letter by introducing himself as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Don't you know that after all that he'd been through, Peter knew a thing or two about redemption. At this point, Peter is an authority on what it means to be redeemed, okay? So let's continue. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Okay, The recipients of this letter were primarily Gentiles. So Peter's drawing a parallel for them to ethnic Israel by assigning them the title of elect exiles. Elect because all of the redeemed believers are now God's chosen people, not just the nation of Israel. And exiles because the earth is not our home. Okay, And just as the Israelites were exiled and longed for their inheritance, their home... So we, God's chosen elect, now long for our eternal home. Okay? And to further make his point, he uses the word dispersion to describe the state of the recipients of his letter. Dispersion in the Greek is diaspora, which was typically used to describe the scattering of the Jews throughout the world. But Peter uses it here to describe the Gentile followers of Christ. Okay, so he's explicitly teaching that the church of Jesus Christ is the new Israel. And we see similar teaching in Romans chapter 9 where there are several parallels with this passage which are drawn between ethnic Israel and the chosen people of God who were, of course, not all ethnic Israelites. Okay, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, that's redeemed, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay? So we've been redeemed to a living hope, which is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So what were we redeemed for? Well, according to Peter, first, in this passage, we were redeemed for an inheritance. In the Old Testament, the Israelites' redemption from the slavery of Egypt was for the inheritance of the promised land. But today, our redemption from slavery of sin is for the inheritance of a resurrected body, which cannot be tarnished or spoiled, and it's being kept in heaven for us, okay? That is really, really, really good news. No more will we suffer the ails of this life and these mortal bodies that we're carrying around. How glorious will that day be when we receive our final inheritance, a perfected body for eternity with Christ and with each other. Okay, we were redeemed for an inheritance. Now let's go to verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith 
more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right? So in our redemption, we may be grieved by various trials, tested for our faith, that our faith may be purified and shown as genuine. But, but why? What is the point of being tested? What is the point of trials? In verse 7, again, for the praise and glory and honor of Christ and for the church. And again, there's a parallel here with Romans in chapter 8 this time, verses 17 and 18. Paul tells us that we suffer with Christ, that we also may be glorified with Christ. Okay? Suffering is very much a part of our redemption, I'm sorry to say. It's throughout the Bible. I'm going to do a teaching soon on the cup. Anytime you see the word cup in Scripture, that's very significant. There is a cup of suffering that Christ talks about once we're redeemed. But the purpose of suffering is the glorification of Christ in the church. The end of it is good, you see. It, it tests our faith, purifies us, makes sure we're the metal that he wants us to be, the purity, okay? So we've been redeemed for an inheritance. Secondly, we've been redeemed for trials so that our faith may be tested and purified. Thirdly, for the glory of Christ in the church. Our salvation is a free gift, all right? But following Christ... Everything after our redemption by Christ is not guaranteed to always be an easy road. But in the end, if we finish the race, we're glorified with Christ. And in the meantime, we experience untold blessings in this life. Okay? Let's continue. Verse 8. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Okay, the outcome of our sin is death and eternal separation from God. The outcome of our faith, our redemption, is the salvation of our souls and eternal life with Christ. So, number four, if you're keeping track, we were redeemed for eternal life. No more separation from our loved ones who've gone ahead of us. No more fear of death. No more temporary home, just eternity with each other and with Jesus Christ. We've had some notable deaths this week. Um, it's hard for us to, to take that. There are uh, two people in Alaska, our church in Alaska. Uh, Harold Barnes, who was our head usher for many, many years, passed away last week. Um, this week, Scott Leist, a great man, he was the head of our board, uh, passed away. Um, I don't know if you've heard... Um, Rick Warren, Pastor Rick Warren's youngest son, committed suicide yesterday, 27 years old. Uh, notable deaths. It's hard, to, it's hard to take. But when we know that those uh, new Christ were redeemed, we know that we'll be with them for eternity. There's comfort in knowing that. Okay? Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Listen to this passage, which this has always fascinated me. Verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Okay? It's kind of a side note, but worth mentioning. Do we really have any concept of just how much our Father loves us? 
we see here in this passage that the prophets of old, even the ministry of the servants of God in ancient times was for us, Christians today. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. And then verse 12 goes on to say that even the angels long to understand fully what God has done for us. Okay? So from the very beginning of time throughout the ages, God has had you on his mind. From day one. So much so that even the ministry and service, according to this passage, of the Old Testament prophets was for our benefit. That's amazing to me. That's amazing to me. Their ministry was for our benefit. That should really put the Old Testament writings into a perspective of relevance for all of us today. I'm certain that God loves us far more than we truly understand. Verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? So number five, we were redeemed for action. Preparing your minds for action. The church has been redeemed for a purpose much greater than just our own happiness. It's not about comfort. It's not about safety or position or respect or status. Our redemption should be the first step in a life of action. A life spent, and and I mean spent, poured out, sacrificed to the service, the action of making disciples of others. The church wasn't put on this earth for a static existence. We were put here to be agents of change in the world. Kind of think of yourself as a James Bond for Jesus. You're an agent of Christ. You have a mission. And it doesn't get accomplished by just attending church, by the way. We've, we've sort of locked that in our culture, what it means to be a Christian. Well, I'm a member of a church. I go to First Amazing on Main Street. We have to go out in the field. We have to complete our mission. That means living a life of action, okay? Not a static, comfortable existence. From the day my wife and I sold everything, walked away from a lucrative career, gave up homes and every kind of thing a guy could want, and went after the calling in our lives, went for broke after the calling in our lives, there hasn't been a dull moment. Now, people say to me, well, you went to Alaska, that must have been an adventure. Uh, Alaska must have been amazing. Uh, Or coming back to South Carolina, that must be starting a new church. And they talk to me about, listen, it's not the destination. Alaska's great. South Carolina's great. It isn't about a destination. It's about the journey. We need to have that perspective on this entire life. You see, this isn't our home. But we get so hung up on where we're going to land in this world. I'm trying to get to this place, or if I only had this ministry, or we were in Alaska and pastoring a church, or we've started a church. So what? It isn't about the destination. It isn't about where you land. It's about the journey. That's the exciting part of it. That's the adventure. Where we land at the end of it is just nuts and bolts. It's ABC. It's sort of irrelevant. Christ has each one of us on a journey. The destination is not on this earth. So forget about this earth. Be about the journey. People making disciples of Christ. And wherever you land, so be it. Accept it. John ended up on an island in the middle of nowhere. After all that he poured out, 
That was his destination. He also wrote the words of Christ for us. It's about the journey. It's not about the destination, okay? We are to be a people of action. Verse 14, as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Number six, we were redeemed for holiness. And generally speaking, I think that it's fair to say that we don't preach holiness in church, uh, at least not in our tradition like we used to. It's become much more popular to preach grace at the exclusion of everything else. Listen, thank God for grace. Thank God for grace. Without it, none of us would be saved. And do I think we should go back to the fire and brimstone, sort of, you know, the turn or burn, angry, screaming sermons that I grew up with that made me cower in a sea of fear and guilt at the altars? No, I don't. I don't think so. But I'm afraid that we've thrown out the baby with the bathwater. It's not popular to talk about holiness in church anymore because it feels like an affront to our freedom, right? Our autonomy as individuals, which is in the DNA of our culture. We're independent people. But I point us back to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Verse 16, you shall be holy for I am holy. Like it or not, we were redeemed for holiness. We're instructed to stop sinning and be holy. None of us is perfect. We know that. We need to repent earnestly and often for our mistakes. I have to repent often for my mistakes, my sin. I have to ask God to cleanse me. We're not perfect. I mess up all the time. But we are called to strive for holiness. The gift of grace doesn't remove the requirement of holy living on our part. Okay? I'm very sad to see the church with a wink and a nod dismiss sin all in the name of grace. This whole Facebook thing, I don't know if the world has changed or I just know, know more about what's going on in the world because of Facebook. I have a love-hate relationship with Facebook. It loves me and I hate it. I'm telling you, I have all these friends and they're, they're mostly church people. And I see things on Facebook that literally shock me pictures and comments and, and lifestyles that are being celebrated by other members of the church. It shocks me to see a pastor or a Christian comment about someone's uh, unwed pregnancy or, or something going on in their life and rejoice with them. And Now, I'm not saying we condemn people. That's not what I'm talking about. We love people. We love new life. We care for unwed mothers. Absolutely. But we don't celebrate the sin. And that's what I see going on in Facebook. And it makes me very sad to see it in the church. Okay? That's uncomfortable. I'm going to move on. <laughs> I think we've moved away from teaching holiness in the church. That's my point. And we should get back to that. Um, verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Another Old Testament reference. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. 22. Having purified your souls... 
by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Verse 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The seventh and final outcome of redemption listed here is love. We were redeemed for love. You see, if we don't have love for each other, none of this means anything. We nullify everything else that we attempt to accomplish if we can't love each other. So let's just get it straight between us right now. We are the body of Christ. This is a family, and love isn't optional here. In fact, as we examine the theme of redemption all throughout Scripture, we see the driving force behind it, that is love. God's love for us and his people's love for each other. I've been literally shocked by the generosity born out of love that I've experienced in this church already. I've watched some of you sitting here today bless others well beyond what would normally be comfortable for you because you have love for each other. Many of you sitting here now, right now, have done things for me and my family that have astounded us. Not because we earned it and certainly not because it was comfortable for you. Not because I'm a great preacher or I've somehow merited it, but solely because of love. We know that. And we've been left speechless by the love of this body more than once. That's how it's supposed to be. Don't ever lose it. Don't ever let it die. Okay? Don't ever let routine or religion or familiar patterns dull your acute sense of love for each other. We were redeemed for love and so we must love one another. And so far, you get high marks. I am so proud of our church. I can't tell you. I don't have the words, but we need to keep it up. As each new face walks through those doors, let's pour ourselves out for each other in love. I've told you before, if you've been here more than two weeks, you're officially a greeter at Upcountry Church. Don't wait for an invitation. You just grab the hand of somebody that's brand new walking in and make them feel at home. We need to love on people. All of these great outcomes of our redemption... And who are they for? The last part of verse 25, and I'm closing. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Preached to who? To the redeemed. That's me and you. The good news was intended for the redeemed because it's only good news if you've been redeemed, right? We have so much to rejoice for, so much to be thankful for, so much to live for as the redeemed body of Christ. The key is to accept our position, our status as redeemed believers. Okay? When we continue to live, and this is where so many of us are. This is, catch this, okay? If you're struggling, when we continue to live in the shadow of our past or in fear of a future that we've imagined, we fail to recognize who we are in Christ. We are the redeemed. And if we are to live the life that he's apportioned to us, we must recognize what we've been redeemed from and what we've been redeemed for. Okay? 
Because at the end of this life, and even in the, in the midst, really, of this life on earth, being redeemed means that we are victorious with Christ. All right? I've asked Kayla to come and sing this song about redemption and victory as we close. And as she does, would you just take time for the next couple of minutes to reflect on what it truly means to be redeemed? And I feel like the Lord wants to talk to some of you today, um, wants to love some of you today. I think that he wants some of you to realize fully that you've been redeemed. Because I think we have so many followers of Christ today who understand it, but we haven't accepted it. Redeemed. You're not the same person you used to be, okay? Let's think on him and on that as she sings.